What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? What's stopping Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we are here to get that question answered. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us today, for example, in Nigeria, your phone number is one 205 271 2985. And if you're watching us on TV today, we've got an email address just for you, and that is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully we can answer it on today's program. Again, the phone number 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. So we're up to N now? Is that We're up we to are? N, yes. We're working okay. our weary way through the, uh, Are we going to be album. like hurricanes when we get through with disease? We're going to start back over at the A's? I'll have to get back with you on okay. that. All right. Here's an uh, email to lead us off. Uh, Elizabeth says, my non-Catholic friends disagree with the Catholic priesthood. They say we don't need a mediator before Christ. Any comments? Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So your non-Catholic friends, do they pray for each other? I wonder. Let's hope. I, I, you know, probably they do, would yeah. be my guess. And in doing that, are they not mediating for one another? Are they not acting as intermediaries? If mm-hmm. I'm praying on your behalf, isn't mm-hmm. that isn't that a form of mediation? And doesn't Scripture say that when Paul, speaking of himself and the other apostles, Second Corinthians 5, say that we have become Christ's co-laborers as if God were making his appeal through us? Isn't that a form of mediation? Mm. What about when St. Paul says in Colossians 1, I fill up in my own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. Isn't that mediation? Isn't he offering his sufferings on behalf of the people of God? And, you know, the, this this business about mediation, it's not just limited to the Old Testament priesthood, which, of course, Catholics concur is no longer relevant. We don't have the Old Testament priesthood anymore. But even beyond the question of priesthood, look at... Uh, Look at the end of the book of Job, for example, where God says to Job's companions, well, you know, don't pray to me, because I'm not going to listen to you, but ask my servant Job to pray for you, and I'll listen to him. Mm. And really, from Genesis to Revelation, we find this idea that the righteous can intercede on behalf of the unrighteous, that mediation is part and parcel of of how the Christian faith works, because the goal, the ultimate end of Christian life, is to build ourselves build up one another in charity and that means caring about one another and the way that we exemplify that express that is primarily by bearing one another's burdens to god in Mm. prayer now as far as the priestly office specifically goes saint paul refers to himself as a priest in romans chapter 15 he talks explicitly about his priestly duty of configuring the Gentiles as an offering that he will make to God. I mean, the job of a priest is to offer sacrifice, and Mm -hmm. he explicitly says that he has an apostolic duty 
to, to gather up the Gentile church as the offering that he's going to give to God, which makes sense of his remarks in Romans 12 that all Christians have an obligation to offer themselves as living sacrifices, this being their spiritual act of worship. The Christian life is characterized by sacrifice and offering that's central to our identity, and priesthood is, uh, is integral to that, to that identity. So, again, the pastoral epistles, First, uh, Second Timothy, Titus, identify specific roles within the church, presbyter, deacon, and so forth, that uh, that are definitely hierarchical. And Paul can say to Titus, for example, the reason I left you in Crete was so that you could appoint other men to this sacred ministry after you're gone. I mean, there's a continuity of hierarchical ministry, a priestly identity of the people of God, clear principles of mediation. And look, of course we can pray directly to God. I mean, the Catholic Church doesn't deny that every Catholic prays the Lord's Prayer every day. We'd want to. We'd just pray directly. Sure. But but the fact that we can go directly to God doesn't mean that we don't also benefit from the principle of mediation, mm. and that it's central to Christian identity. Very good. And uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for your email. Hope that's helpful for you. Here's one now from anonymous. If God is all knowing and He created everything. Why did Jesus need to die for our sins? If God is the one setting the terms and conditions of everything, as it were, couldn't God just forgive us of our sins without the death of Jesus or any sacrifice? Sure, God could make any conceivable world, right? God, mm-hmm. God, God could make a world in which um, Alabama perpetually had a bad football team, right? <laughs> he, he didn't make that world. No, he right? didn't. And, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, who's kind of our... Our, he's our grand poobah theologian, if you will. He speculates about, well, you know, could God have redeemed the world without the death of Jesus, without the incarnation? And he says, well, yeah, of course he could have. He's God. He could he could do it that way yeah. if he wanted to. So there's no strict necessity. It's not like God was compelled by some exigency of nature to only redeem the world in this way. So it's not, not, no, nothing sort of constrains the divine will to choose to redeem us in this fashion. Rather... We say that it's fitting, not necessary in a strictly logical sense, but fitting that he should redeem the world in this way. Um, through the incarnation, the uh, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, assumed a human nature, and so renders our union with God um, not only possible but visible, if you will. I mean, he he literally is the incarnate um, union of the divine and the human, and displays for us. That real possibility that something beyond our mortal nature is offered to us, namely union with the, with the Godhead himself. I mean, that's what the Incarnation says. Mm-hmm. He, he dies. He, he experiences death, like this horror that we all have to look forward to, as it were, and then rises from the dead uh, to demonstrate to us that our death is not the end, that there is something after death, and that the possibility of victory over death is very real because it's accomplished by the Son of God, who is the head of the Church of which we are members. Um, you know, we so it's fitting. It's fitting that we would come to redemption this way, even if it's not absolutely necessary. All right. And Anonymous, thanks so much for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, please send it to uh, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to get to Christy in Florida. A couple of lines are available for you right now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders right here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
We're glad you're with us for a call to communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Christy in Florida watching us on YouTube. Hey there, Christy, what's on your mind today? Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, Dr. David Anders, I love, um, I just love listening to you. I've learned so much from you, and I was born Catholic, but I'm really, really struggling um, with the fact that I absolutely love the Bible. I, I could just devour it, but I find that um, I'm getting more and more frustrated with the Catholic Church as far as I just want a very, very natural approach to Jesus. I just want Jesus and His Word and a very devout approach to Him, but I just feel like um, if the goal of our faith is to be so Jesusified by Jesus Himself that we act like Him and we have a heart that is more and more like His, why do so many behaviors and liturgical practices of the Church not look like Jesus's behaviors, such as, like, you never see Jesus praying the Hail Mary, but you do see Him um, praying the Our Father. You do see um, Him living in a very modest way, but you don't see Him wearing the costumes of the Catholic Church that, that the, the bishops wear. You don't see the pomp and circumstance that that the bishops are um, receiving. You don't see Jesus asking for that or even promoting that. If anything, you see him doing the opposite. So I'm just really wanting a more natural approach to Jesus, and I, I'm i struggling with that. Could you please help me? Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the question. So let me talk about two things. One would be the ornamentation of the Catholic faith, and, and then the desire for, as you put it, a natural, sort of simple approach to Christ and the other. When it comes to the ornamentation, I do want to point out one story from the Gospels I think is pertinent, and it occurs in all four Gospels, and that's the story of the woman who anointed Christ with the alabaster jar of nard, of, a, of an ointment that John tells us was nard. And mm-hmm. I, I have no idea how to value a pound of nard, <laughs> right? But I, I just Google searching, and uh, so this is this is the all-knowing Internet telling you this, not me as an authoritative oh. answer. But I found at least one site that claimed that— uh, a pound of nard in Jesus's day would have been about um, fifty-six thousand dollars in today's wow. economy. So, wow. what you know? Could you get a like a, a, a sort of a middle of the road Tesla for that? You know. <laughs> so I mean, imagine this woman coming in and being like, "Here's my Tesla," <laughs> yeah. handing it to, you. and which would be you know a luxury automobile. Sure. And and uh, of course the disciples took the view that you've taken. Mm. Hey, this is ridiculous. This is a waste of nard. We could have sold this and given the money to the poor. That's what Judas said. And Jesus says, no, not what she did is appropriate. What she did is appropriate. She's preparing me for my burial. Okay. And, of course, I'm sure you know this. The Catholic position is that in the liturgy of the Catholic Church, there's a lot of good things going on there. But the best thing going on there is that Christ himself is with us. Uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity, mm-hmm. truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. And so the ornamentation that has grown up, and look, this is a cultural accretion. It's something that's developed in the church over centuries. Um, but the very kind of gestures that you're talking about, those liturgical practices developed basically out of respect, out of acknowledgement of the dignity of the person who's present, mm-hmm. namely the glorified Christ. And if it was appropriate in the first century for uh, an adorer or worshiper of Christ to, you know, basically 
park her Tesla in the church parking lot and hand him the keys, which is effectively what she did, then it's appropriate for us, right? And the the idea is not to wow the worshiper with, uh, you know, thinking, you know, well, gee, look at us, don't we have neat clothes, right? It's it's really to direct the mind of the church, the worshiper, to the dignity of the person who's on offer, as it were, and the and the dignity of the the life to which we're called. So, um, but. <clears throat> When it comes to how can I approach the Catholic faith with this desire for a sort of simple, natural, Christocentric form of life? Well, to, to go back to the sacraments for a second, we emphasize so much the supernatural power and the real presence of Christ, that it, in which is good, that sometimes Catholics forget another aspect of the sacraments that is equally true, and that is that all of the sacraments are symbols. You know, the bishops got very upset recently that so many Catholics had stopped believing in the real presence. They, that's good that they got upset about that. I, I think they should also get upset that many Catholics have also stopped believing that the Eucharist and the other sacraments are symbols. They're both those things. Sure. And as symbols, they're meant to teach. The Catechism says because they are signs, they teach. What they teach in a ritual gestured way— mm-hmm is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Each one of them points to some aspect of the mystery of Christ, which was a a condescending, degrading mystery. It was the mystery of of divinity being born in a stable and dying in ignominious death. Baptism figures, symbols, the death and resurrection of Jesus and our joining him in that descent into the water and our rising again with him to new life. Mm -hmm. Um, The Eucharist, of course, the double consecration of bread and wine— represents the separation of Christ's body from his blood that took place on Calvary. It's why we call the Mass the memorial of his death and resurrection. So it literally calls us to the, the deepest form of self-emptying, to, to be like that thing that we are looking at, the death of Christ. Augustine pointed to the Eucharist and said, Church, become what you see, namely this, this condescension that Christ, uh, that, 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 uh, that Christ deigned to take on. Uh, and, of course, ordination, marriage, are sacraments of service. Marriage specifically is meant to figure the self-sacrifice of Christ for his bride, right, which is giving up his whole life. And so these are. this is not pomp and circumstance. The heart of the sacraments is a message of deep personal abnegation, of self-sacrifice, of, of humility, of divesting ourselves of these things. Now, what you're asking for is most appropriate— in, in the, the mode of your relationship with Jesus. And while you, you have found maybe some of the ornamentation of Catholic liturgy to be a distra- distraction, at heart, Catholic spirituality is precisely the thing that you've described. It's this deep conformity to Jesus where our, our character is conformed to his, and hopefully we come to see the world through Christ's eyes. Um, if, you, if you dive into the spiritual and mystical literature of Catholicism, which I strongly recommend that you do, sounds like you would take an interest, that's all you're going to find. That's all you're going to find. You're only going to find this desire for profound conformity to Jesus. Um, so explore that literature if you haven't already. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's a little hard to, to, to get into because each mystic uses an idiosyncratic vocabulary that's unique to that person. Mm-hmm. They don't all talk the same. Uh, but some of the names you would look at would be Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Francis de Sales, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, Augustine of Hippo, 
um, uh, Francis of Assisi, the Desert Fathers, the writings of John Cashin. Uh, in the East, you might look at the Cappadocian Fathers, uh, at Maximus the Confessor, um, Avagrius Ponticus, um, and others. And uh, so mm-hmm. begin to explore that. Look at the Desert Fathers. Look at the great monastics. Look at the rule of St. Benedict. Um, uh, read the mystics. Read the prayer warriors of the Catholic faith. And I think you'll find... Um, stated in beautiful and effective and challenging terms exactly what you're looking for. Christy, a lot to unpack there. Thanks so much for your call, first of all. Uh, Secondly, if you'd like to uh, revisit any of this uh, information that Dr. Andrew shared, please go to our podcast, EWTN.com, and uh, that'll be a forward slash radio. Once you're on the radio page, look for uh, uh, this program, which is under Podcast Central. We list all those programs that we produce in alphabetical order. So just scroll down a little bit and uh, you'll see Call to Communion. Our producer will have that uh, posted for you in the next couple of hours. Thanks again for your call. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 833- It is called to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Going now to Matthew in St. Louis, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hey there, Matthew. What's on your mind today, sir? Oh, good. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, My question kind of relates to the earlier question about why are there priests in the Catholic Church. Uh, My question is more how how did the tradition of the black vestments and the white collar develop throughout, uh, where was that determined, and why do some priests are wearing white or yellow or purple? I know that may go according with the holiday season. Um, Really, my question is, what is the standard or the, how was it developed that basic, I guess you would call it entry-level priests, were the black with the white collar? Okay. And that's, that's my whole thing. Um, yeah, so the, the, the clerical dress uh, is—it has been a distinct clerical dress for a while. The, what's called the Roman collar is, uh, is, is fairly recent in church history. Yeah, really? You didn't, you didn't always have that going on. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm not an expert on it, but I know it's not—I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it doesn't go back thousands of years. Yeah. It goes back you know, a century or two, but okay. it's not much, much beyond that. But the idea of having a distinct clerical dress— underscores the, uh, uh, well, the, the, the distinct status of the clergy within the people of God. And, you know, for a Catholic, uh, clergy are important. They're important in their mediating role. Um, you know, if a person, say, for example, is in danger of death and they want to uh, uh, make sure their soul is right with God, they want to have access to the sacrament of confession— for example, last rites, it's, it's good to have somebody who's marked out, who both has that job, but also he's visibly recognized. Yeah. And, I mean, if, you know, if I were—I uh, was talking to a priest this morning, actually, who told me that um, immediately after 9-11, when people were feeling quite nervous about the safety of airplanes, uh-huh. um, that he, uh, whenever he was on a flight, he would, they would, the stewardesses and people would notice him and they would get kind of excited and bump him to the front. You know, uh-huh. they were happy to have a priest on board. And once the public status of the clergy began to fall a bit after some of the abuse scandals came out in 2002, he was getting bumped back in the line, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but the point was he, he, he wanted to be recognized mm, as a priest so sure. that he could be of better service to people. And, you know, I, I, priests all the time, if they're out dressed as priests, people will stop them and ask for a blessing. They yeah. might ask for confession. They might ask for the sacraments. 
and uh, they, they get a lot of work done just by being recognizable as priests. Pretty cool. There you go, Matthew. Thanks so much for your call today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, we are here for you. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's an email from Mary now. Someone I know said that in the Bible, there is a passage that says, We shall praise God from the rising of the sun until its setting. That would be Psalm 113.3. And that this is referring to the Mass. His reasoning was that the Mass is going on all over the world at all times. Is that what this passage means? Also, how would I explain that to a non-Catholic? Okay, thanks. So the question of what does a passage of Scripture mean is a complicated one. Do you mean... Did the inspired writer of Scripture intend, consciously intend, that particular interpretation? And I would say the odds of that being the case are very low, because the Psalms were written long before the Incarnation, and the New Testament tells us that the prophets of the Old Testament did not know the time to which the Spirit of Christ within them was pointing— when they predict the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So they had only the haziest, most shadowy conception of what the kingdom of God would look like and what the coming Messiah would look like. And so they wrote things, the significance of which they did not quite understand. Mm. And, and uh, what St. Thomas Aquinas tells us is the way Scripture functions is that a sacred writer can have a specific, narrow purpose in writing a text— but the Spirit of God can have an expanded purpose that might not be known to the human writer. Right? More interestingly, Thomas says that, say, let's say you have a chronicler who, who simply writes down what happened in some battle or some dynastic struggle in ancient Israel. And that's his goal. He's just, you know, he's writing political history of his time. Uh-huh. What he doesn't know is that the events that he's recording are themselves typologies of something that will later take place in the life of the Christian church or in the ministry of Jesus, and that it is God himself who is writing not just the book, but the course of human history. And so that there's a correspondence between the actual historical events, mm-hmm. and they are presaging, unknown to them, something that will take place in Jesus. Right? And so the job of the New Testament interpreter, or the Christian interpreter, is to look back upon those ancient historical narratives that may have a rather narrow meaning in their own case and discern a greater spiritual significance and to draw these kinds of connections, right? So there's a passage in Malachi, a very celebrated passage of Malachi, where the prophet mentions that in the age to come, the Gentiles will offer a pure offering. Well, it's entirely possible that Malachi may have had in mind, you know, like a burnt offering of the Old Testament type. Uh All the church fathers said, well, Malachi may not have known that, but he's obviously referring to the Eucharist. You see. Mm, and so I yeah. think that the, the, the kind of interpretation your friend is giving is good, provided you, you connect that to what we call the spiritual sense of the Scriptures, not their literal sense. All right, very good. And uh, Mary, thanks so much uh, for your email. Again, if you're watching us on TV today or uh, anybody who is watching or listening to this program, if you would like to send us an email for a future show, here is the address, ctc 
at EWTN.com, CTC at EWTN.com. We try to answer, uh, well, hopefully two or three emails on each of our programs, and then once a month or so, we'll do a mailbag program, answer a whole bunch of emails. In a moment, we're going to get to a question from Cully on YouTube, listening in Arlington, Virginia. Also, we will uh, be talking with Ed in Iowa, listening on the great Iowa Catholic Radio. A couple lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, or maybe you'd like to explain what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, well, 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN to stay with us. Glad you're with us for Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Ed in Iowa, listening on the great Iowa Catholic Radio. Hello, Ed. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I was just watching a new movie that was released uh, called Society of the Snow, which is about the, I think it was the uh, Uruguayan um, football team that was stranded in the Andes and <clears throat> resulted in uh, cannibalism to stay alive. And obviously they went through some moral conundrum to make that decision, but ultimately had to for their survival. My question is, what is the moral implication of a situation like that? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So this is a toughie. This yeah. is a toughie. Um, here are some, I, I, you know, while we were waiting for the call to come on, I, I was searching like Matt to see if I could find any authoritative Catholic statement addressing the specific case. All right. I couldn't find anything, but I've got some principles that I can give you. Okay. Um, in Catholicism, it is never permissible to do something intrinsically immoral, even if you intend a positive benefit like the 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 the, the means that the end does not justify the means okay um you can't do something intrinsically immoral just because it has a good effect as a good consequence that's called consequentialism that's ruled out mm -hmm. you um uh, you can however do a good action that might have a bad consequence if you don't intend the bad consequence that's called the principle of double effect so whether or not, here's what's clearly absolutely ruled out. Um, you cannot kill someone in order to eat them. Okay. Because that's it definitely intrinsically immoral to kill anybody. All right. Um, there is a French children's song, Il était un petit navire, um, that is ha rather hysterical at this point. It's about a young sailor named Matelot who has his, voiden, his, uh, his maiden voyage on the Mediterranean. And the ship gets lost in the storm. They don't know where they are. They run out of food and water. And so the sailors draw straws to find out who they're going to eat. Oh, my. Right? And the lot falls to Matelo. And uh, he's the youngest guy on the boat. And so Matelo prays to the Blessed Virgin, and she sends a, a miracle of a swarm of fish that jump onto the boat, and they they oh. they eat up the fish instead of Matelo. Okay. It's out of there. But, like, that's... That's actually in the, you know, nursery rhymes are kind of gruesome sometimes. Sometimes, you know? yes. Anyway, that's one of them. But um, uh, uh, but you can't do that. You can't draw lots and see, you know, who gets to be on the mm. menu tonight. Right? Yeah, you can't yeah. do that. What about a corpse? Well, somebody expires naturally. Could you eat the corpse? And here's my intuition. And this is just an intuition based on my reading of Scripture and Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. um, 
my intuition is no, you could not. And the reason why is because the, the, the scriptural tradition and the Catholic tradition have always treated the human body as sacred. I mean, it's, it's why we have the burial practices that we have. It's why we venerate relics. It's why we don't allow cremation except under certain circumstances. Um, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's why so much of the Catholic ethos and the history of devotional behavior towards death presumes the dignity of the body. You remember in, uh, in the Old Testament when Saul and, his, uh, and Jonathan were killed and their bodies were mutilated by the Philistines, mm-hmm. the Israelites fasted for seven days and they went on this reconnaissance mission to go recover the bodies and make sure they had a decent burial. I mean, the book of Tobit is all about the, what we call one of, the, one of the works of mercy, which is the proper care and disposition of the dead. And I can't think of anything more undignified uh, than eating you, right? Yeah. And so I, 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 you know, without having ever seen a, an official Catholic pronouncement, thou mm. shalt not eat dead corpses, <laughs> right, yeah. in order to survive, yeah. I'm thinking the, uh, the, the impermissibility of consequentialism, together with the Catholic doctrine on the <clears throat> dignity of the human body, says to me that you could not do it. Mm. Now... I've never been trapped at the top of the Andes in a 747, you know, covered in snow with, with like no chance of survival and been faced with that dilemma. And so, you know, that's the problem. I don't like these hypothetical scenarios. Mm, yeah. um, and I'm never in the business personally of wanting to pass judgment on another man's soul. I, I, I want to leave that up to God, right? Um, but uh, but uh, my intuition on this is, no, you, you, you couldn't do that even to survive. Okay. Is that helpful for you, Ed? It is, yeah, thank you. All right, appreciate your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Not too late to call 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Joe is in Pennsylvania listening on the great JMJ radio. Hey there, Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Dr. Anders, how did you... uh, uh, I, I assume that when you were a Protestant, were you one of those uh, once saved, always saved Protestants? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So y- you have to draw a distinction in Protestantism. Um, the Calvinism has as one of its cardinal doctrines a doctrine that they call the perseverance of the saints. And what that means is that if a person is elect by God, mm-hmm. uh, he's decided ahead of time that they're going to go to heaven— and he gives that person the grace of regeneration. He causes that person to be reborn in the Holy Spirit, grants them faith, justifies them, forgives them of their sins, and all of that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So they're on the path. That such a person will never fall away from the faith. That such a person will never fall away from the faith. That's, that's different from what many people mean when they talk about once saved, always saved. Because once saved, always saved, to say many fundamentalist Baptists means... All I have to do is pray a prayer and invite Jesus into my heart, and then, you know, I can go off and rob and kill and commit adultery and apostatize and walk away from the church, and doesn't matter what I do, I've got the get-into-heaven-free card. Mm. And that is not the way the doctrine was originally understood by Protestants. So Calvin and the Puritans, for example, would have said of such a person, if they had prayed to receive Jesus or been you know, admitted to the church, and then they behave that way, your typical Puritan would say, well, well, that guy was 
was never regenerated to begin with. What he had was a false faith. It was a spurious faith. It looked like faith, but it wasn't the real McCoy, because if he'd had the real McCoy, he would have persevered. And so within Protestantism, there was al- there's always been this debate about how do I know I'm one of the elect? How do I know I'm one of the saved? Puritanism was all about trying to answer that question. And, and basically, it boils down to, to one or two different kinds of answers. So one answer that came was very popular in, in Puritanism was uh, called the practical syllogism, the syllogismus practicus. And it was the idea that if I'm really saved, then my life will give evidence of that in good works. And so the ethical quality of my life gives a kind of provisional evidence that I am, in fact, one of the elect. And if I am one of the elect, I'm never going to fall away. If, however, I fall away, well, that, that sort of countermands that evidence and suggests that my works weren't really done in grace and I never really had true faith to begin with. All right, so that's when you hear, when people hear Puritan, they usually think of a highly moralistic emphasis. Mm-hmm. And that was, that's where that comes from the idea okay. that my ethical behavior is a kind of sign of my election from which I could drive a kind of, uh, a kind of confidence. Now, at the other end of the extreme, uh, you have uh, Anne Hutchinson and the Antinomians. And if you've ever been in Boston Commons, you've seen a statue to Anne Hutchinson, and she's you know, revered as a kind of you know, feminist icon and defender of the liberty of conscience and that sort of thing. But in the context, Hutchinson was reacting against that Puritan view um, because she said, well, that, that really takes away from the confidence of the soul of God's free mercy and grace and forgiveness, and it seems to make your your state of mind depend upon this evaluation of your moral effort, and that throws us back into Catholicism again. Oh, isn't that a terrible place to land, <laughs> right? So, so instead, you know, if you know, if you just have conscious knowledge of your own act of faith, well, then that's all you need. You have absolute assurance that you're going to go to heaven, regardless of the quality of your moral life. So Anne Hutchinson was more like the once saved, always saved people, right? Where was I when I was a Presbyterian? Well, someplace in there. <laughs> you know, someplace in there. I mean, quite a spectrum, right? Exactly. I mean, I was told growing up that it was really important that a person have absolute assurance that they would go to heaven when they died. That was a big part of the tradition. If you mm-hmm. die tonight, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And so, since they told me that was important, I would be like, "Yeah, I'm going to go to heaven if I die." Yay! Okay, what's the evidence for that? Okay, that's a little bit more complicated, you know. And so, I, I think I was like many Protestants. I think really most of them. Um, a friend of mine put it this way. He said, the elect know for sure they're going to heaven, and I might be one of them. <laughs> Love you know? that line. So there's a, there's a bit of a paradox in yes. the idea of absolute assurance, because it has to be grounded in something, and it has to be something subjective, because it's something that connects you to the promise. And so there must be some sort of evaluation of your own interior spiritual condition. You have to pass some kind of litmus test in order to have that assurance. It led to what Cardinal Newman criticized as the Protestant tendency to what he called self-contemplation, as opposed to the Catholic view, which is that I'm not going to look to myself for some sort of evidence. I'm going to look to the objective promises of Christ and the offer of grace and the sacraments. So if I want to have hope, hope rather than assurance, just, just... you know, stay snuggled up next to Jesus in the church and the sacraments, persevere till the end, and then that's how you know for sure you'll be saved. Joe, thanks so much uh, for your call today. It's called Communion here on EWTN. Please sure to join us for our newest show on the radio side. That would be Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers, new to EWTN Radio. Uh, You can hear that Monday through Friday afternoons at 4 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers, we know him as the dynamic deacon, and he really is. He will set you on fire for the Catholic faith. Deacon 
will be taking your calls, talking about today's culture, sacred scripture, and the teachings of the church. He'll also have some guests on with him. You don't want to miss it. Uh, that is Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers, 4 p.m. Eastern, each and every weekday on EWTN Radio. Let's go to one of my favorite cities in our beautiful country. That would be Fairhope, Alabama. Robert is a first-time caller from Fairhope, listening on the great Archangel Radio. Hey there, Robert. What's on your mind today, sir? Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it, and um, it's always wonderful to listen to to this program. Um, my question is about time and the idea that time is relative and a construct of, of what we experience in this world. Um, after we die, is there a, an elapse or an experience of time? Uh, you know, God uh, stepped in outside of time, uh, to, you know, uh, to create uh, our world and time. Um, but after after we are no longer here, if we are in heaven or if we're in purgatory more specifically, is there um, really a element of time, at, or is it, you know, you, you're uh, instantaneously uh, outside of this life, and uh, then you are reunited with everyone before and after, etc.? Um, I just... I've never really heard that explained, um, or if that element holds true um, after this world, and just wanted uh, thoughts and explanation. Yeah, Thank you, thanks. and I appreciate, I appreciate the call. It. So, actually, this is something that scholastic theologians, Catholic philosophers, have given a lot of thought to and have a definitive answer to, and the answer is that only God is eternal, so we never talk about humans or angels entering into eternity. I mean, we do that colloquially, but mm-hmm. it's it's a... That's that's misstated. We shouldn't actually say that. We don't we don't experience eternity, um, but time, as we experience it in this life, does seem to be connected to bodies, uh, to material bodies, and you know the the Stoics, for example, thought that time was the measure of the interaction of bodies. And so you know in a in a in a, in a world of absolutely no material change, there would be no time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, and so the separation of soul from body, or you know, perhaps the existence of angels who, for, for whom the body is a totally alien, uh, they don't have the kind of temporal existence that we have, but they don't have the, exp- the experience of God's utter timelessness. And the word that they used, I believe the concept dates back to uh, Albert the Great, but Thomas Aquinas is the one that perfected it, um, is eternity, A-E-V-I-T-E-R-N-I-T-Y, eternity or avum, avum. And so it is a kind of uh, middle stance between eternity and temporality, mm. where, um, say, uh, they have a, 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 more, a more modest form of changeableness, particularly in regards to the capacity for choice. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, rational activity that can take place that has a successive aspect to it, even though other aspects of their nature, of the angelic nature of the separated soul would be fixed. Fascinating. Appreciate your call from Fairhope. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Tony in Dallas, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio, AM 910. Hey there, Tony. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Um, it's kind of a practical question. I live in uh, a suburb of Dallas, and we have a new priest that's been assigned to our parish. Uh, and I want to support my parish, but I have tried and tried at Mass. I cannot understand 
this man's English. He's from another part of the world. The accent is just so heavy. I've even sat in the front pew a few weeks trying to see if I can, you know, see his lips. I just cannot understand, and I want to be fed through the gospel and the homily, but is it wrong of me to go look for another Catholic church where I can understand what's being said? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Um, I say, personally, me, and I'm David Anders, and I, my opinion is, you know, that plus now about three bucks will buy a cup of coffee, right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm nothing authoritative about my opinion. Um, but I, I have changed parishes, you know, because of a change of clergy assignment. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've changed parishes even when the priest, you know, spoke intelligible English, right? Um, but still motivated by personalities, sure, you know, and sure. and and so this is this kind of consideration. Sure, I mean you 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 want to go where it's going to be a benefit to your family. Um, there can be reasons to stay in such a parish. I mean, mm-hmm. You can have relationships that you don't want to lose. Uh, you know, you can be involved in the mass in some way, uh, maybe music ministry or your elector or something, and you feel committed to that, or you want to support the parish, and so you're going to sort of sacrifice your own. Um, some aspect of your own spiritual experience for the good of the community, but I'm not saying that's an obligation. So, the, yes, you could construe that situation in a number of ways, and one of them, quite reasonably, I think, would be I need I need to change parishes. Um, wouldn't be a terrible idea to drop a note to the diocese, maybe the vicar of clergy, yeah. and say, you know, I just I made this decision, and I think I'm not the only one, and, you know, we wish Father the best and hope he has a great ministry, but this, is, uh, this ain't working, guys, and uh, you just need to be aware that people are having this response. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've seen this before. We have a lot of extern clergy in my own diocese, and um, some of them are among the best clergy I have ever known in yes. my entire life, yes. like like by orders of magnitude good. Um, not all of them. And uh, and then I've met some who, who I just really respect as human beings, but— uh, but you can't understand a blooming word they say, yeah. you know, and that that's that's problematic. And so, you know, my own response to that is, I'd love to have those guys at my sick bed, you know. I mean, I really would, and yeah. I'll have them over to dinner and like it better when they mm. cook for me, <laughs> um, you know, which has also happened. Uh, typically, uh, get a lot of, uh, um, you know, fragrant uh, aromas in in yeah. some of their some of their cuisine, you know. Sure. But um, but as a homilist, I'm not I'm not digging it. I'm not digging it. You know, I have a. a like it would take a lot of humility on the part of a priest to do this, but uh, um, not infrequently. I mean, I have priest friends when they get sick, maybe they have laryngitis or something. Priest will be there to consecrate the Eucharist. He gets a deacon to preach the homily, mm. you know. And so, I mean, there are there are ways, there are creative ways that sure. the bishop and the priest himself could could find to get around this problem. If it's a kind of a humble acknowledgement, hey, man, this is, I I need help here. Yeah, and. That's what deacons are for. Sure, they're to help the priest conduct his ministry. So, yeah. And, but yeah, you could you could change. Tony, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call from Big D. It is called to communion here on EWTN, and Cully is listening to us on YouTube in Arlington, Virginia. Cully says, in the early mass after the creation of the Vulgate, did they have ministries such as lector or cantor that we have now? Oh yeah, oh yeah, they were there. Absolutely, yes, yeah, big time. Um, and I, you know, I'm not an, that's not my area of expertise, and mm-hmm. I can't give you the dates when different offices popped up, but I mean, they, 
various church offices, including including lectors, have been around for a very long time. Okay. There you go. And uh, Cully, thanks for watching us on YouTube in Arlington. Here's an email now from Hank. In evaluating Catholicism, I'm scared by the tension between impressively airtight Catholic doctrine and widespread ignorance among practicing Catholics. Is it possible that Catholicism is engineered to attract intellectuals, but in practice leads common persons into pitfalls of superstition, scrupulosity, or even Pelagianism? Of course! Yes, absolutely, 100%. Agree with everything you just said. But I would add this qualification. What you just said is true of every religious tradition. Mm, yeah. All right. So I'll give you an example. When I was in grad school, I had a, a, a really uh, beloved mentor uh, in uh, the University of Iowa, a guy named Robert Baird. And Baird was an evangelical Protestant, believe it or not. He uh -huh. went to Fuller Theological Seminary in Iowa for his Ph.D. But he had uh, circumstances of his life were such that he had developed a professional expertise in the religions of India, which, of course, had nothing to do with evangelical Christianity. He yeah. studied religion and law in contemporary India. Uh -huh. India. And he, um, so he knew, you know, the Vedas, and he knew the philosophical texts from the Hindu tradition, and which is quite elaborate and very doctrinaire and quite sophisticated. And they have developed ideas of heterodoxy and orthodoxy and all this sort of thing. But he told me he would, whenever he was watching... Um, uh, practitioners engage in pujas and other rituals, he would always ask them, why are you doing that? Now, he knew what the texts said. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, he knew what all the official commentary said. And it, he often would get the answer, oh, this is our tradition, so to do, which was another way of saying, <laughs> we don't have a clue why we're doing this, you know. Um, when, when I was doing my doctoral research, uh, actually what prompted my particular doctoral dissertation, when I was writing my master's thesis on a reformed theologian named, a little-known guy named Pierre Viret. He was a, a Swiss theologian who was real popular in the 16th century, but very unknown today. And he preached in the vernacular. And uh, I was reading him um, on doctrines of providence and predestination, and he was preaching a sermon, and he mentioned the, the sort of the power and certainty of the Word of God. Then he turns to his congregation as kind of an aside and says, and uh, by the way, guys, read it, don't wear it. Ah. And, and it, it jumped out at me, and I went, Oh wait a minute! They his congregation is hearing him extol the power of the word of God, but what they understand by that is very different than what he means. He's exhorting them to a kind of cognitive engagement with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. They were taking it as a talisman and pinning it on their clothing, oh. right? And so I actually did my dissertation on this idea that there is an official clerical theology that may or may not penetrate into the minds of the lay faithful, right? Um, I grew up in the Presbyterian tradition, which is an extremely dogmatic, doctrinaire, theologically sophisticated tradition with a you know, highly elaborate doctrinal system that was—you uh, you have theology nerds, the kind of—you of, um, 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 of uh, you know, you have these bearded, cigar-smoking, <laughs> Tolkien fan-wearing, you know, 20-something, uh, you know, masculine nerds that get really into it. We called them the thoroughly reformed, right, who, who sort of— specialize in expertise in the pedantic minutia of the reformed uh, tradition. A lot of this. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, okay. But but then you get, you know, your grandmother, right, who, <laughs> who could care less about, you know, whether you're a pre-lapsarian or a post-lapsarian, you know. Yeah. I mean, they and so this 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 happens in in every tradition, in every church and and every for centuries you can read theologians bemoaning the theological ignorance of the laity and calling for better catechetical effort. Mm, like that's yeah. just a perennial part of every religious tradition 
Catholic, Protestant, Hindu, Buddhist, you name it, you name it. Um, and so the, that's not an argument against Catholicism, right? Um, that, that's an argument uh, in favor of catechetical ministry, right? And sure. to a certain extent, I think, um, a recognition that, believe it or not, some of those grandmothers are actually more holy than you are. Could be, yeah. Right? And some of the people who don't have a sophisticated doctrinal understanding um, have the spirit of the thing lodged in their hearts in such a fashion that they live lives of, of unbelievable charity and virtue, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes superstition. Yeah. Well, there you go. And uh, Hank, thanks so much for your email. I think we have just enough time to get to Derek listening in northern Kentucky on the great Sacred Heart Radio, AM 740. Derek, what's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon. I just had a quick question. I've been pondering this for a little bit. Um, I have a a two-year-old son that I take with me um, to church, and he is very, very curious about uh, the the communion, and we actually practice it at home sometimes. Um, So what I do usually is on Sunday I'll go in and I'll I'll, uh, take a cracker with me in my pocket, and after I go up for the communion, uh, we get to our our pew, and he wants to, um, I usually give him the communion. I just want to know if that was okay or if that was kind of frowned upon. Okay, yeah, thanks. So here's something I will never do. I will never criticize a Catholic parent for bringing a two-year-old to Mass and uh, and attempting to secure their cooperation through any means possible, <laughs> right? As someone who has had five children and two grandchildren myself, I am keenly aware of the difficulties of maneuvering Mass with Whoa, two-year-olds, right? Yeah. So, you know, my hat is off to you. More power to you, whatever works for you, you know. Um, the concern, I think, that uh, that uh, catechists would give you is that as we raise our children, we want to make sure that we distinguish the Eucharist from ordinary bread and wine, right? Yeah, and yeah. and so w- whatever you choose to do, make sure that, you're, that you can draw that distinction. And obviously, at this age, you know, you're not going to be able to have a doctrinal conversation with the child about it. So cho- choose your gestures, mm-hmm. though, wisely with mm-hmm. an eye to maintaining that distinction. Very good. Derek, thanks so much for your call. We also received a little response here from Suzanne on Facebook regarding that caller who had difficulty comprehending his priest with a thick foreign accent. Uh, Suzanne says, Our parish has a priest from another country. There are times where it's very difficult to understand the priest, so we find Bishop Barron's Sunday homily online and or the weekend EWTN mass homily. That has worked well for us. Yep, yep, yep. So a lot of things you can do. Sure. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern. You can check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com slash radio. Then look for Podcast Central. Scroll down and you'll find it. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us today. See you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.